Now entering Nerdist.com. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 48, A Private Little War. Welcome into another edition of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. You know how this game is played. We watch Star Trek, then we talk about it. We talk about it so we can then all try to figure out if there are morals, meanings, and messages that still hold up in the 21st century. Today, war. Huh. What's it good for? Okay, now what's a private little war good for? We'll find out as we go through the show. If Edwin Starr had done a song called A Private Little War instead of War, it would have been much quieter. It would have been <laughs> War. Shh. Good God. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think half of our listeners have no idea who Edwin Starr is. Look him up. Great song. <laughs> I mean, you said, uh, I've actually got Midnight Star stuck in my head now. Oh. We yeah, are. Yeah. Midnight Star. We're going to show you how to do it. Yes, we are. In fact, John Champion right now is going to show you how to do this one thing that he does all the time. Although, seriously, this is like episode 48, I think. If you haven't picked yep. up by now how it's done, well, let the master show you. John Champion, hit me with that trivia action. So, of course, today we're talking about a private little war. And uh, this is a story where the Enterprise crew finds itself having to interfere and provide weapons to a group of uh, undeveloped uh, uh, people on a technologically undeveloped people on a planet. Um, but what else does this planet have in store for us? Well, it has a beast, a beast called the Mugato. And uh, that character has really taken on a life of its own. You know, it's one of those things kind of like the Gorn, not as famous as the Gorn, but you see the image of the Mugato and you kind of know, aha, yeah, that, that's a kind of a cheesy Star Trek monster. It's a white-haired ape-lizard hybrid uh, that's just there because we needed more action and monster fighting <laughs> excitement on this episode. Are you a fan of Zoolander? Uh, you know, I wasn't actually, but I know what you're talking about. Okay. So the Will Ferrell character in Zoolander is Mugatu. And of course, Will Ferrell is a big guy, tall guy. And in the movie, he's got this white, like shock wig and he's crazy looking. And they, they named his character specifically after the Mugato, uh, because he and Ben Stiller are both big Star Trek fans. You know, you know, the problem I have with the Mugato, uh, What's that? I often confuse it with the Quijibo. <laughs> Wait, I'm sorry, a Quijibo? Ah, see, that's a bit of trivia that I'm going to hold on for myself then. You look that okay. up. You All right, look cool. that up. Cool. I, I will say the description, though, uh, a big, dumb, hairless ape with a short temper. Oh, okay. Yeah, there yes. you go. All right. We made a Simpsons reference. Good job. We didn't. <laughs> I did. You did. <laughs> but please, go ahead. Okay. Um, the original title of this episode, Tyree's Woman, which I think is a little less clever than the title we ended up with. Um, and for those of you who check out our website, missionlogpodcast.com, and our Facebook page at Mission Log Pod, uh, we have a story draft by Don Ingalls. Uh, it is a revised draft, so it's a little closer to the final story. Um, and you can check that out for further study. There are very 
similar plot points, uh, but some of them in different order than what we have here, and some with different characters. So, for example, in the opening, Kirk is shot at. It kind of grazes him a little bit. Spock isn't hit. Um, and the sequence of events leading up to Nona's healing of Kirk is played out a bit differently. Um, there is a face-to-face meeting between Kirk and the Klingon, as well as Tyree and Appel, the head of the other faction. Uh, so that scene is just completely gone from the final. And uh, we need to mention a couple of guest stars. Uh, Dr. Mabenga, who is played by Booker Bradshaw. Now, he is one of the only guest stars to appear in the original series twice as the same character. Who is the other guest star appearing as the same character twice, Ken? Uh, Sadly, I cannot remember the actor's name, but of course it was Harry Mudd. Yeah, played by Roger C. Carmel, uh, the the late Roger C. Carmel. And here we got uh, Dr. Mabenga, played by Booker Bradshaw. The other standout uh, guest star is, of course, Nancy Kovac, who plays Nona. Uh, She did a lot of TV in the 60s, all kinds of cool roles. Uh, She appeared on The Men from Uncle and Batman and, you know, all the cool stuff. Uh, She was in The Silencers, one of the Matt Helm movies uh, starring Dean Martin. She was also in the Elvis film Frankie and Johnny. Uh, Now, one of her probably better known films is Marooned. Uh, do you remember this movie starred Gregory Peck and uh, it was Apollo 13 before there was Apollo 13. Mm-hmm. You had a group of astronauts marooned with only an hour left to save them. Well, Nancy Kovac is in that film, too. I got to say really quickly, just to head off any emails and we'll tell people how to email us later in the show. Con. I understand you're talking about people on the series, but Ricardo Maltabon did come back as the same character with the original cast. Not with the, not not during the series, but you know, just right. just to stop all the emails saying uh, you forgot about Ricardo Maltabon. <laughs> right, right, yeah, yeah. It's one of those things that always stumps people at trivia, um, uh, particularly at uh, conventions. But outside of the original cast, if you look at the guest stars who came back and who came back as the same characters. Uh, now, you could make an argument about Kyle um, or uh, LaSalle, but those were not named as often. Here we actually have a guest star, uh, not a day player, who came back and played the same character twice in the original series. Listen closely, those who would learn, to the tale of the epic battles between the Hill people and Seriously? The village people? Prologue. On the planet Neural, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy are surveying the flora. Kirk was here 13 years before doing the exact same thing. The inhabitants are peaceful but haven't evolved technologically past the use of bows and arrows. When they hear people coming, the landing party try to hide and watch as one of the inhabitants lies in wait with a gun, a device he should not have. Kirk is worried because one of the approaching men is Tyree, someone he'd befriended on his first mission there. He can't interfere with a phaser, so he throws a rock which distracts the gunman and warns the people who are approaching. In the confusion, Spock is shot and McCoy has the three beamed back up to the Enterprise. Act 1. Spock is rushed to sickbay, and Kirk goes to the bridge. There's a Klingon ship approaching, and Kirk is still concerned about how a civilization could develop from bow and arrow to flintlock guns so quickly. Things in sickbay don't look too good for Spock. McCoy has brought in a specialist, Dr. Mabenga, who interned on Vulcan to help. 
Kirk needs to return to the planet, and he needs McCoy to return with him. He's concerned about the approaching Klingons and whether or not they're violating a treaty by being there. He calls down to Scotty to get a couple of costumes to fit in with the locals on Neural because, you know, Scotty has costumes. Back on Neural and sporting a lightweight yet rugged fashion, heavy on earth tones and animal skins, Kirk and McCoy spar a little on the relative level of their breaking orders by directly contacting the planet's inhabitants. Out of nowhere, a huge, white-furred, alien lizard unicorn yeti lunges at the captain and the doctor. It's the Megato, a fearsome beast on this planet. Kirk distracts it long enough for McCoy to shoot it with a phaser, but Kirk has been bitten. The bite is poisonous, and Kirk will die unless he can get back to the hill people and his friend Tyree. McCoy begs for help from passersby. Act 2. Kirk has taken to the settlement of the hill people. We then cut to Tyree and his wife, Nona. He's the leader of this tribe, and she is possessed of some pretty awesome skills herself. She knows her way around herbs and medicines that can not only heal, but can also make men fall in love with her and be a total slave to her will. They're watching one of the armed villagers from a distance, and she says she's pretty sure that they could use some of those fire sticks, too. Tyree isn't convinced. He thinks there is a peaceful solution. Right in the middle of her seductive counter-argument, which involves a lot of up-close contact, one of their people interrupts with the news of Kirk, you know, Tyree's friend from long ago. Nona walks into the cave where Kirk is passed out. McCoy is heating rocks with his phaser. Instead of saying, whoa, cool, what is that? Can I have one? Nona steps out to find Tyree. He knows something about these people. Either he tells her, or she won't help Kirk with the Mugato bite. On board the Enterprise, Chapel is a bit distraught about Spock's condition, and she's holding his hand. Dr. Mabenga explains that he's in a trance state, concentrating to help heal his wound, but he can feel and hear everything going on around him. In the cave on Neural, Nona is ready to heal Kirk. She produces a root which is shaking and places it over Kirk's wound, She then has Tyree slice into her hand with a knife, which she places over the root. She writhes, sweats, cries out, and then Kirk is awake and the wound is gone. Also, she seems to have picked up a little knowledge of who Kirk is. Oh, and on top of that, Tyree explains that no man can refuse a woman who has done this with a man. McCoy, you just got owned by some ancient medicine, and this may well have an effect on Kirk's better judgment. Good luck with all that. Act 3. With Kirk conscious, he and Tyree are finally able to catch up. So, how you been? Good, how about you? Thanks for finding someone to heal me. She's totally dreamy. Sure, no problem. She's also my wife. Hey, about those guns. Yeah, about that. On board the Enterprise, Dr. Mabenga tells Nurse Chapel to keep an eye on Spock. He's doing better, but if he wakes up, make sure you do whatever he says. Whatever he says. During the get-together back on Neural, Nona lets on that she knows more about Kirk and where he's from and the power at his command than he originally lets on. She wants him to supply Tyree with some of that power. Oh, and no man can refuse a woman who has healed him. Kirk is not hip to the idea of helping Tyree with weapons or interference that would accelerate Tyree's battle with the villagers, even if the villagers have stronger weapons. Then Nona kind of takes a swipe at Tyree's masculinity after he refuses to fight. 
Kirk is ready to get to the bottom of why the villagers have guns. He does a little recon and discovers, uh-oh, the Klingons are behind this. They've been supplying the people from the village with flintlock guns. That's right, the Klingons are giving guns to the village people. In a secret meeting, the Klingon representative Krell is presenting one person with an advancement, a rifled barrel. Uh-oh, again, after all that snooping around, McCoy and Kirk have been caught at the barrels of more guns. Act 4. There's a quick escape after a little fisticuffs, but we need to check it on Spock. He's woken up just enough to speak to Chapel. She must strike him. In the face. No, harder. It's a Vulcan thing. Well, actually, he needs her to do this so he can shake off the state of deep concentration. Scotty sees what's happening, and he tries to stop it, but Dr. Mabenga again comes to the rescue, and he also slaps around Spock a little more. On the planet, Kirk is getting Tyree and his men set up with guns. McCoy is not happy about this in the least, and there is a confrontation of words. McCoy says that Kirk is escalating a war that may never end. Kirk says the development of this planet has already been disrupted. He needs to equalize the power struggle. McCoy doesn't have a better solution, but he's not happy about it. Kirk reminds McCoy about the 20th century brush wars in the Asian continent, (coughs) Vietnam. (coughs) There needs to be a balance of power. His decision is final. Nona spots Kirk out in the woods, and boy does she turn on the charm. Well, she's charming, but she's aided by that mystical herb that makes men all disoriented and lovey-dovey. In walks Tyree, and now he's got a gun, and he doesn't like what he sees. But he can't bring himself to use the weapon just as he steps away. Oh, no, Mugato attack. Kirk is still a little too much under the spell of the herb to help Nona at first. When he snaps out of it, he has no choice but to pull his phaser one and destroy the Mugato. Nona is all... Hey, that's a nice phaser. Tyree returns to camp, but then goes back to the clearing in the woods with McCoy. They find Kirk, but Nona is gone, and she has run off with the phaser and offers it to the villagers to take to their leader, Apella. The villagers start to fight her for it, but she can't fend them off because she doesn't know how to use the phaser. She pulls a knife, but she can't overpower the three men. Kirk, McCoy, and Tyree show up, But as soon as they are spotted, a villager stabs Nona, assuming this whole skirmish was a trap. A fight breaks out. There is confusion, punching, not too much shooting. And finally, in the fracas, Tyree stands up, poised to drop a large rock on Kirk's head. He's a little worked up. His wife just died, after all. And war is a nasty business. In fact, Tyree is so worked up with that overwhelming feeling of vengeance, he wants Kirk to provide him with more guns now. He's going to go after the villagers. Kirk opens communication with the Enterprise. Spock is well enough to be back in command. Kirk asks Scotty how long it will take the Enterprise to manufacture flintlock rifles. He has resigned himself to the fact that the path of war is inevitable, and he has helped introduce more serpents into this Garden of Eden. I got to say, I got to argue with you on one thing in your recap. And there mm-hmm. was a lot to recap there, but... Um, yeah. The Klingons are not supplying the village people. (laughs) (laughs) They're not going to laugh every time. Yeah, I know. They're not supplying the village people with guns. They're teaching them how to build guns, which I found actually a very interesting thing about the Klingons in this one. And maybe that's because he doesn't want to get caught. But whatever the case, he is actually trying to grow um, a Pella. He actually says, one day you will be a fine leader, a leader of a Klingon world. 
And yeah. I think he even jokes and says, I'll make a Klingon of you yet or something along those lines. I mean, this, you know, right or wrong, and I think we both agree wrong, mm-hmm. um, Krell is trying to bring the people that he's chosen. He's trying to bring the side that he's chosen along in his ways. He's not yeah. just, I mean, because he could certainly hand them a Klingon disruptor and say, all right, clear out the hills. He's not doing that. He's, he's raising a warrior race. And that, that, I mean, I'm not saying, I'm not, obviously not saying that's a good thing. Yeah. I'm not going to say it's a bad thing either. It's interesting that, I mean, that yeah. you have a Klingon actually cultivating here as opposed to just screwing up. I think, yeah, and I've got kind of a similar note to that in the the topics that we'll get into uh, because it is an interesting distinction between just handing somebody uh, – hand somebody a gun, they shoot for a day. <laughs> Teach them to build a gun, they shoot for a lifetime. Forever and ever uh, yeah. and ever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, by the way, uh, did you notice when Kirk goes back to the Enterprise and he's he's ruminating on this? Well, they had bows and arrows. Now they have guns. And then Scotty and Uhura are kind of chiming in and he snaps. I and Chekhov. Not, and Chekhov. Yeah. And, and Kirk snaps. I did not invite a debate. I, You know what? I'm going to cut him some slack. I, I thought it was more heated speculation, uh, not so much debate. Well, but, uh, I mean, know. he's used to getting the logical argument from Spock, but Spock's down in sick bay, so he figures he's got at least 25 minutes where he's not going to have to deal with that. What, <laughs> what they were saying actually made sense. Yeah. He's like, they yeah, had bow yeah, and totally arrows, did. and now they have guns. And everybody's like, well, you know, a flintlock would actually be the next logical step. I mean, yeah. which I'm not sure I agree, but, you know, I mean, right, that's, right. they were all like, yeah, that actually makes sense. It depends on when you got here. Let's say there's 1,200 years that you're going to be bow and arrow, right? And then you're going to go to gun. How do we know you didn't get here at a year 1,197? Yeah. Exactly. And so you were only three years away from the flintlock. If you had just stayed a little longer, you're going to have one too. I have, yeah. a, I have a question, and this could maybe be a topic at some point, but I think for today it's just an observation. Mm-hmm. Um, especially drawing back to something or, or hearkening back to something that we hit last week as well. Sure. There's a certain Vulcan uh, separatism. Hmm. And I'm not saying there's like a Vulcan separatist movement or a Vulcan supremacist movement, although we have you know talked about that kind of thing before, not, not quite right, in those right. terms. But um, last week we had the Intrepid, uh, people by 400 Vulcans. Now, we've discussed yeah. before whether or not there are other Vulcans on the Enterprise. I, I'm under the impression they're not. Some people say that there are. It's never actually mm-hmm. stated clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Intrepid, 400 Vulcans. Not, oh, man, there were a lot of Vulcans and a lot of humans and some Endorians. No, 400 Vulcans on the Intrepid, right? Right. Dr. Right. Mabenga interned in a Vulcan ward. Yeah. This is the second week in a row that we've had a bit of differentiation between you know Vulcans and everybody else. It's just it's yeah. just an interesting thing. I'm not saying maybe eventually if we get like four or five more of those, then maybe we have to go back and go, all right, what is going on there? But Yeah, well, and, and you know, it, it's interesting you bring that up because, uh, oh, if, if you're still listening to Mission Log in another uh, 10 years or so when we get around to Enterprise, uh, the, the treatment of Vulcans is very different. And, and I think that you can – it, it, it upset a lot of people, but I think you can draw a nice parallel to say, well – Here's here are all these little indications of the the Vulcans being a little standoffish, a little separate. They have their own thing. Um, the, they are respectful and want to be respected for the distance that they keep. Sometimes, mm. um, so it, it is an interesting dynamic. And you know, I kind of brought this up in an episode a couple of weeks ago that you do ask yourself the question of, well, what does this federation really look like in terms of the melting pot? 
you know, when you bring in a new culture, a new civilization, how much of that stays unique and discreet and how much of that gets uh, assimilated, for lack of a better word, into the sort of broader culture that is the Federation. So, yeah, I, you know, it's interesting to see these little hints of that um, in how we describe what Vulcans are doing elsewhere. Yeah. Um, by the way, I'm, I, I'm sure that you noticed that, I, you know, ever since uh, Kirk left the people of Val uh, without a Val god to destroy, they've actually done very well for themselves. They've opened up a wig exchange <laughs> with the people on Neural. Yeah, yeah, I actually so, thought the hill people looked a bit like the feeders of Val. The villagers yes. to me uh, mostly look like Richard Hatch for some reason. <laughs> Well, but, but wait a minute. I thought one of them looked quite a bit like Mickey Dolan's uh, from the Monkees. I did know? not see that one. I will yeah. say, though, that Apella, the leader of the village people, um, dead ringer for Father Guido Sarducci. My God, this is just full of cameos, and they didn't even know it. Well, not really. Yeah, cameos. This is like Father Guido Sarducci and Richard Hatch and uh, and uh, and Mickey, Mickey Dolan's. Dolan's. Well, Mickey yeah. Dolan's actually just would have walked across the lot, I suppose. But uh, Sarducci yeah. and Richard Hatch got in a time machine, went back in time, did like a little peek in. Yep. On the yep. Uh, on the side of the uh on the side of Star Trek and then, you know, back to our time. If I had to build a guest star dream team, I don't think I could do any better than that. Yeah. Um it, by the way, you know, this is a pre-industrial planet. Kirk was there 13 years ago, and he's just hanging out with Tyree every day, apparently. They're buds. They're they brothers, for crying out loud. They are. Yeah. They are. Did, did no one else ask, uh, hey, Tyree, what, what happened to your pal Kirk? Well, it's not stated exactly how many people there are, but remember, Kirk. when Kirk does not know that Nona knows that he's from the stars, he's yeah. just going to pass himself off as being from someplace else. Right. On the planet. So yeah. apparently it's not, hills. yeah, you know, he, he just showed up. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. right. The seven hills, maybe. I don't yeah. know. Or, you know, the hills beyond the hills. But I mean, mm-hmm. he, he, you know, when he showed up the first time, he probably, what was he doing telling Tyree about starships? Keep this, know, keep this to yourself, but. <laughs> right, right. Because if you tell anybody, they're going to think you're a loon anyway. By the way, okay, the scene with uh, uh, Chapel slapping Spock. And then Mabenga comes in and slaps Spock. All I could think about, and I'm sure you thought of the same thing, the shot from the movie Airplane. <laughs> Get yourself together. Pull yourself together and slap the woman who's, who's freaking out. And then you cut to this long line of people who are waiting in line to slap her. And, right, and right. Her too. Hilarious. With the story recounted, and some of the incidental points addressed, time now to dig deeper into this private little war. So, this is a very, 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 very thick episode. There are just tons of things going on here, and almost any part of it, it feels to me like you can pull out and have have a big... um, a big conversation. I'd like to start with one that we've had a couple of times before, but I'm a little confused by it this time. <laughs> okay. Um, what is up with the romanticism of the Garden of Eden in this episode? Um, mm-hmm. If there's one thing that, that James T. Kirk does not like, it's the idea of whiling away the days, naming animals, and you know, just kind of chilling out. And yet here he says in a wistful way that this is a Garden of Eden, though it should be noted that this is sort of like you know Jim Kirk's idea of Garden of Eden, where... Mm-hmm. We're building weapons. 
Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, right. now now we're doing it in a sort of a slow pace, sort of a considered pace. But I mean, what they're saying is, uh, it was a Garden of Eden, and it stays a Garden of Eden. Uh, all they got is bows and arrows, you know, just like they had in the Garden of Eden. I think he's confusing Eden with Fort. You know, name whatever reenactment fort was in your town where you grew up. I mean, for me, it was Fort Nashboro because I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee. And you go downtown and you're like, oh, look, they used to churn butter. We just buy it now. And oh, look, they had flintlocks, except, you know, because they did because it was 1779 for crying out loud. But uh, nothing Garden of Eden about it. I mean, even primitive weapons are still, you know, weapons, which still sort of goes counter the whole no weapons, no killing, no idea what we're even talking about when we talk about, you know, sin or jealousy or anything like that. I, I agree. It's a misplaced metaphor. Um, it, it's more just sort of Kirk romanticizing this past idea of, you know, people <laughs> living on the land and, and having these, you know, they have weapons. They, they can still hunt. They, they're right. certainly having a battle with the village people. <laughs> I just want to make you giggle again. Um, but, uh, I, yeah, it, it's hard to think of it as an Eden, yeah. for sure. Romanticizing um, an idea that he has never once found romantic that he has, in fact, argued against. Well, but here's the thing. So the the people, though, on this planet, they're not worshiping a computer god. Uh, they're not under some kind of mind control. So they got that going for them. This is something that will be a lot more palatable to Kirk yeah. than a lot of the other situations we've come across. Yeah. Still no Garden of Eden. Go ahead. So, no, okay. Um, so the first of many things, I mean, I, I agree with the, the way you intro this section of the show is that you could just pull one thread and run with it. And I almost thought about putting no notes down at all, just saying war. Uh, we're just going to talk about an arms race and, and we could just go. Uh, but there are a lot of other elements here that we can get yeah. into. Um Certainly the flexibility of the prime directive um, is interesting, and it's too bad almost that you don't have any direct contact with Starfleet. We're we're just purely on the ship and purely going under Kirk's orders Uh, because non-interference is one thing when we're there for anthropological study. But it's entirely different when Klingons have already screwed it up and we're planning to install a, a puppet government and use the planet as a strategic bit of empire expansion. Because, as you said, that's what the Klingons are doing. They are looking to build their empire by having Appel in charge of a Klingon-approved government. Well, um, I, I, forgive me. Hang on. That, mm-hmm. That's why it's okay this week. I mean, I actually had to stifle a chuckle when... In his captain's log, Kirk says, I have elected to violate orders. Yeah. <laughs> I guess yeah. I guess I'm supposed to be surprised. I guess the way he said it, I'm supposed yeah. to be like, yeah. oh, really? He's violating orders this week? Ooh. Wow, that makes Shocking. it very much like last week and the week before and the week before that. <laughs> um, right. I, I will say it felt to me like we learned a bit something about maybe why he thinks the prime directive is so gooey. Mm-hmm. Um, he kind of helped make it. Yeah. At least that's the indication that I get. When he says that he was here 13 years ago, yeah. and then they say, uh, I think Bones said, or no, Spock, one of them, Bones or Spock, I can't remember which, because they're, they're down there together at, at different times, mm-hmm. uh, says, oh, you can't do that. That would be violating the prime directive and, and you know, or not the, the policy of non-interference. And Kirk's like, don't tell me about it. Come on. It was my trip here 13 years ago that sort of helped codify that. Right. Now, it's interesting. I I am more under the impression that the prime directive is something that has been developing 
over time, uh, at least a century. And, and I go back to Enterprise for that. But we haven't got to Enterprise yet. Uh, but the Prime well, Directive has been brought up. But I, I, I will agree with you that it's something that at least has been codified at this point well, and probably okay. in, in a heavy relation to Kirk. Let me let me argue one thing, though, really quickly. We know it wasn't there 100 years ago because uh, yeah. we have um, – we have. Uh, yeah, the horizon yeah. and Bella Oxmix and that episode that I can't remember the name of because I'm doing that Piece thing of the again. Action. Piece of the action. Yep. Thank you yep. very much. Yeah, yep. I mean, there was no problem leaving that book there. Yeah, and they yep. they even say in a piece of the action, well, that was before we had the you know whole non-interference thing. Although you would right. think, I guess you would think if if Kirk was part of that, please, Kirk's the kind of guy who'd be like, hey, you know that whole non-interference thing? That was me. <laughs> right. I mean, you might actually at the same time and this again is like the the weird thing about this episode there's there is something that seems to me very every time we come across somebody like the metrons or the telosians or you know trelane's parents we get a little mm-hmm. you know hey why can't i know about this i'm smart yeah i'm gonna do a little fredo i'm not like everybody says i'm not dumb i'm smart right, right. and we think well why wouldn't the telosians share just because they screwed it up doesn't mean we would Right. Why wouldn't the Metrons talk to us? Eh, come back in 5,000 years when you're you know, smart. Then we'll talk to you. you know, oh, things right. like that. Right. You couldn't handle what we are. And I know as a viewer, that's always kind of bothered me. Although maybe that's why, maybe that's why Spock and Kirk and everybody else are always fine with that. Because they're doing that. They're doing mm-hmm. that here with, um, mm-hmm. with, the, uh, with the people. Well, with the hill people. The Klingons are taking care of the people in the village. But, or no, or not. Yeah, right, it, it, right. it just occurred to me, it, for some reason in this episode in particular, it seemed to me that we were very much being Talosian about the whole thing. Yeah. Like, you know, making them sort of do it themselves. Otherwise, you know, they'll just wreck themselves. Yeah. Well, and, and here's what it comes down to when we're talking about that, that thing, that knowledge that they're holding on to. This is that huge beat you over the head discussion point. In this episode, you know, do we have an obligation to equalize the playing field for two warring factions, particularly when either, you know, the winning side is strategically disadvantageous to you Mm -hmm. or B, when when we're friends with the losing side? You know, you can argue that we have no business being there in the first place. (laughs) You know, you you, you go back to what you said about uh, the Metrons or I even say the Organians, you know, that that's a nice turning of this on its head we're fighting with the klingons and the organians are like you people are ants you are so inconsequential and we can flick you uh, off of our shoulder with you know a minimum of effort um but then you can argue that you have a moral obligation to help those who are being oppressed obliterated or as is the case here with the hill people potentially run out of existence from genocide so what is the other solution? I like that Kirk's decision is final, but it isn't done flippantly. You know, he gets to have that argument with McCoy. McCoy is at a loss. Um, and then we see the human cost of war and we see that escalating aggression, um, particularly when Nona is killed. And and the look on Tyree's face when he's about to bash Kirk's head in with the rock at the end, you know, all, all of this, you take all of this conceptual stuff and you make it personal. Um, and I think that's one of the, the strengths here of this episode. 
See, the thing that I wonder, though, about this episode is do the village, uh, the people in the village, I can't keep calling them the village people. We're going to have a serious <laughs> know, discussion. Right? Do the people right. in the village and the hill people um, even matter in this episode? Because, mm. I mean, you hear mm-hmm. Kirk at one point saying, well, a life of war is still life. And the question is, you know, should we obliterate this side or should we obliterate that side? Mm-hmm. If we're assuming that this is a stand-in for Vietnam or that Vietnam, yeah, well, and I think sure, we have yeah. to. Yeah. Um, as far as the arms race or as far as the, the, the balance of power between the uh, the communists and, and the not-communists around the Vietnam War, the Vietnam had very little to do with it. It was about stopping the domino effect, which some people argue was a thing and some people argue would not have mm-hmm. been a thing, Right. That's all that's all this planet is at this point. So we can yeah. talk about well, it, you know, it is too bad for these people and oh look, we're turning this into this horrible thing, but this is really about stopping the Klingon empire. And so he doesn't want to destroy the other side because he doesn't want to kill the people there, but he also doesn't just want to completely back away because then that would be another planet that would go to the Klingons and you know, these people would die and he does kind of like that guy and so, you know, maybe he doesn't want anything bad to happen to them. But this isn't about that. This is about stopping the Klingons in this one little place, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's sort of awful. <laughs> well, well <laughs> Sorry. yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, I mean, I, what I found myself wondering was where is Kirk's diplomacy in this episode? And, and the answer is it's not here. Is that because the Klingons are an implacable foe? Or, I mean, what is that about? Because it seems to me that, you know, if you want to make it, the, well, not the Tolosians, the Organians, maybe. Mm-hmm might have said, listen, you guys were friends like five years ago. Mm-hmm. Why don't you try being friends again? What's the difference between you and you? You live in a village. You live in the hills. I mean, that's it. Right. Right. There, there's, well, not well, even, there's not even a, a try at that, though. And I think the reason there's probably not a try at that is because, I mean, to me, one of the most fascinating things about this episode is this is 1968 trying to figure out where 1968 is in 1968. This is yeah. not one of those things. This is not like, you know, wow, the future could be so fantastic. The future could be so incredible. This is what, you know, we've heard Robert J. Sawyer talk about in one of the supplemental episodes that we've done and Mm -hmm. a couple of other people talk about. This is science fiction trying to figure out what the heck is going on right now. Yeah. And so, unfortunately, you can't have Kirk save the day because when the 10 o'clock news came on, we were going to hear more about Vietnam. And there's a good chance – that, you know, somebody watching this episode knew somebody who was who was in some way affected by what was going on in Vietnam. So you're not going to have you can't have Kirk say, well, here's the solution, because that's not what this episode is. This episode is. This is screwed up. But but is there is there a missed opportunity there then for the show? Um, certainly a missed opportunity here for Starfleet slash Kirk. I mean, you mentioned earlier, and that's why I wanted to kind of come back to this. You mentioned earlier how the Klingons are the ones who they're teaching the people in the village. I avoid saying the village people mm-hmm. um, how to build weapons. They are they're putting in an educational program, right? Right. right? You know, and for all the times that the Enterprise crew have showed up at a planet, ripped away the false god computer, changed a culture said to the brains living on Triskelion, hey, uh, you're no longer teaching people how to fight. You're teaching them to uh, uh, to better themselves. For every time that we've done that and abandoned them, um, what was the opportunity here to say, well, uh, like you're describing, we need to get these people together, Appel and Tyree, and make them 
self-sufficient and stop fighting. They are the same people. They are on the same planet. Uh, the Federation, uh, the Federation wields power. They're in a better position to affect positive change for the inhabitants of Neural than, than apparently they've been on pretty much any other planet that we've gone to so far. So I, I get what you're saying. As a piece of parallel rip from the headlines, here's what we're doing. Um, it, it seems like there's an opportunity here to present a better option because McCoy doesn't have that better option. And I, I'll kind of contradict what I'm saying here by also saying that I kind of like the ambiguous ending. <laughs> you know, because when this episode ends, it's a downer and we and we don't know what's in store. Well, it's only the episode that ends. It's not the war. I mean, yeah. I, I not to jump to the end, but I have to applaud. I found it a horribly depressing episode. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, and I, and I mm-hmm. was dissatisfied with every choice that they made. But when I go back then and try to think about, OK, well, what would people watching it at the time have thought? I mean, the yeah. one thing that might have been a drag was, you know. Damn it, I watch this to find out how good things are going to be. I don't watch Star Trek to see the news. We've had this kind of feedback from people discussing these episodes almost 50 years later now, too, where people say, come on, it's just a show. Yeah. Enjoy the show, or, or you're putting far too much into this show. This right. show this show was like the law and order before law and order, ripped from today's <laughs> right. headlines, as you right. say. I mean, this, this, was, this was examining where they were right then. And it would be very easy to say, well, all we need to do is make peace. I mean, yeah. and we've had those episodes, and we will have those episodes again. But, I mean, to hold up for people in a different way what's going on today, and today being 1968 when the show aired, um, was it seems well, to be both, it, both brave and kind of, uh, kind of, I mean, a daunting task, I think. Yeah, and it is still relevant. I mean, you know, yeah. we oh, yeah. find ourselves in positions of this politically uh, in the, the geopolitics of, of managing wars and selling arms yeah. it reminds, all it, the actually, time. It reminded me a lot of the um, of when the uh, Soviets invaded uh, Afghanistan mm-hmm. in, sure. the, in the mm, late 70s, 70s. Yeah, yeah, late 70s, early 80s. And the fact that we sort of, you know, just ran the clock. We just kept, you know, supplying enough weapons and they kept supplying enough weapons and we kept supplying enough and they kept supplying enough. And finally, we had just enough <laughs> to sort of run yeah, yeah. <sighs> it, so what yeah. we're saying is we don't have a better answer <laughs> but but as a piece of um rip from the headlines pop culture it's pretty remarkable because it forces you to think about this thing. Well, the other thing to think about too is I mean Gene Roddenberry was a uh, was a was a veteran of World War 2. Mm-hmm. There are going to be times where war is necessary. This, I think he might argue, I, well, I can't tell watching this episode if he or, I know he didn't write the story, but it was the screenplay for this one, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know that he would say, well, sometimes war is necessary and this is certainly a war that's necessary. But this is a guy who understood the realities of war. Right. You know, having flown in one, the war yeah. theoretically to end all wars, and then 20 years later, ugh, turns out not quite. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, to then take... A fairly unflinching look at 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 where we are today. I mean, I could see I could see a guy who has you know, who has flown against an enemy sitting there very frustratedly, you know, laying out exactly why this sucks. Yeah, but you're not just gonna. I mean, you're not you're not writing Superman. He yeah. you know he can't come in and just collect all the weapons and throw them in the sun. I mean, you know because because right. this stuff is still gonna keep happening. And and I could see. 
Yeah. Anyway, I think I made that point like three times now. I apologize that I keep coming back to it. But no, it's good. I mean, this is a provocative episode. Let's talk about another thing that is uh, rife with provocation. Hmm. Um, Our our old standby, (laughs) sexism. It's not a standby, dude. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There's a lot of it in this episode, though. Nona wants phasers. To bring more power to Tyree, at least you think that's why she wants phasers. She plays the I saved your life card, um, you know, with with Kirk. And so you have to do what I say now. She gets disappointed in Tyree and his unwillingness to kill. And then she's disappointed that Kirk, you know, won't commence with the killing. So, you know, she takes the weapon then and goes to somebody else. I mean, it's just, it's, there's, there's a couple of levels of sexism here. I can't tell if she's just a bad character. Mm-hmm. Or or if there's a thing about, you know, women in power here, because there are only two women that we concentrate on in this whole episode, uh, Nurse Chapel and um, Nona. Mm-hmm. Um, nurse Chapel, by the way, also treated in kind of a sexist manner. She is a nurse. She is on board the Enterprise. She knows Spock and Dr. Mabenga. He's like, yeah, he probably even knows you were holding his hand, <laughs> you woman. You know, and then mm-hmm. later he gives her an order. And, you know, she is a medical professional. She hasn't worked with Vulcans, but she's a medical professional. Sure. Rather than explaining to her why she needs to do what she needs to do, though, the reason she needs to do what she needs to do is because he, a male and a doctor, has told her what to do. When Spock comes to do whatever he says, uh, I'm sorry, do whatever he says, was I not clear? Mabenga out. I mean, that's it. He doesn't, you know, I mean, at some point you would, you would think he might go, yeah, and let me tell you why. Now, I understand that's not as great a reveal for the audience because when, when Spock wakes up and says, hit me, hit me harder, hit me harder. Yeah. 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 Unless Dr. Mabenga has a really dark sense of the practical joke. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's it. I mean, the problem is, okay, so yes, that's a better reveal for the audience, but it would have been better for the character to say, let me tell you why, as opposed to. I mean, and certainly I have heard, I have heard nurses, I, I know a couple of people who are nurses, I've heard nurses say that they don't like the way some doctors treat them, and so maybe Mabenga is just that kind of doctor, and it has nothing to do mm-hmm. with sex, maybe it just has to do with the fact that he's a doctor and she's a nurse, and, you know, I, I think the world of nurses, I also think the world of doctors, but apparently that doesn't always, that river doesn't flow that way between those two <laughs> groups all the time. Um it just, well, struck, it just struck me as fairly sexist, though. He's like, yeah, just do what he says. Just do what he says. <laughs> I, I think that's kind of a, a, a blip in this episode. And, and I think it is primarily just due to the, the reveal for the audience for dramatic purposes. But I, I will defend Nona a little bit here. I, I think it's not necessarily the problem with the sexism in Star Trek where we see, you know, Captain Kirk leering at the yeoman of the week. I think what we have here is more just a character who is – that is the character of Nona. That is not the character of women. Now, we're short on women for this episode. We don't meet other kind of witch doctor uh, uh, seductresses. Uh, you, you know, there are no others of her type in this. But I think this character is uh, is motivated and is uh, uh, sort of dramatically justified throughout the episode. So for that reason, e- even though we can see what she is doing in kind of a, a sexist light, I'll actually defend this one because I, I think that, um, yeah, with a little tweaking, it would be different now perhaps. Um, but she's still one of the more complex characters that we've had. And if she's the bad guy, then that's okay. 
you can make the argument that it's a bit heavy handed with the the kind of uh, you know scorned woman, power seeking woman, whatever. But we also have a lot of that in you know dramatic entertainment today, particularly when you do a period piece. The roles of the women are escalated to kind of be the ones who are manipulating from behind the scenes. Yeah, no, I, I disagree. You know? Forgive me, I disagree. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would say you could make the scorned woman argument if she were in fact scorned. I mean, she mm-hmm. saw something in Tyree at some point that he was going to be powerful, and so she drugged him mm-hmm. and and got him to be her husband either so that she could rise to power with him or that she could raise him to power. But the problem is he gets to a point where he's like, okay, well, things are pretty good now. I don't feel like killing. So uh, we're good. And so then she, you know, finally a stronger male comes along. That's Kirk. Mm-hmm. And so then she puts the whammy on him. And mm-hmm. then once she gets the the phaser, I mean, all she is is power hungry. Now, whether, mm-hmm. whether or not mm-hmm. this is sexism or whether or not this is, just we needed a power hungry character okay i guess i don't know why that wouldn't be his second in command i mean it, look sexism isn't always necessarily saying something bad about another sex i mean it can also just be well we need a bad person well let's just make it the woman i mean mm-hmm. because there is not a picture of strength well there's not there is a picture of strength here with the woman but not a picture of the only good woman is weak and the strong woman is bad I mean, that's basically what it comes down to. We have two presentations of, of, of the female here. Nurse Chapel is weak in this episode, and, uh, and Nona is evil. Yeah, but, but again, I think that's, it, it, that weakness is just because of the limits of the script. We, we don't have enough female characters in this to really show a breadth of experience here. And, and like I said, I think the Chapel thing is more a problem of the dramatic reveal with Mabinga and with Spock, we're, we're just kind of showing our, our audience here what's going on. Well, then why, um, not, why not have Dr. Mabinga be female then? I mean, this is what I'm saying. Look, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand, I, I, I I understand that, him yeah. being the PC police here, but I mean, mm-hmm. these, these were actually two things. Everything else about this episode is, I think, well done. Mm-hmm. This was something, and maybe it's because we now live in the time that we live in where we're more trained to you know watch for sexist things. There was, there was something to me about... Wow, the only two women here are wrong in one way or another. And mm, if, if mm-hmm. you had had Dr. Mabenga be a woman, or if you had had maybe instead of it being Tyree's woman, which I know that was the name of the episode, so it's always going to be about his wife, I guess. But I mean, if you were talking about a, a, an Iago to, you know, Tyree's Othello as opposed to a Desdemona to Tyree's Othello, then you've got a completely different thing. You don't have to even worry about the sexism part. Though I will say, I'm not sure why everybody gets hung up on Vina because um, Nona. She was a lovely young woman I'll put yeah. it that way At yeah. least, uh, you know Well, not really Nancy Kovac, I am a fan And now the moment you've all been waiting for. The moral of the story is. Ugh. <laughs> I almost don't want to ask the questions today, but you know, it, it, it is it, part of the it. thing that we do before we get out of here. Uh, time to, time to wrap this whole puppy up. 
Not too tightly, though, because it's only a puppy. Uh, figure out whether the message's morals and meanings. Well, first of all, figure out what the message's morals and meanings are in this episode, and then figure out if those all stand the test of time. Uh, John, this one's a piece of cake. Go ahead. <laughs> you want me to handle messages part first? Because, uh, messages, morals, and meanings. I'll let you do yeah, it all. Yeah. It's yeah, it's because it's easy. This episode. Sure. Okay. So I, I, here are a few that came to mind. Uh, war is never the answer unless it has to be, <laughs> and uh, never, never interfere with another society's technological or military growth unless you have to. Unless you need to, right? Yes, yes. And uh, do, do I dare say with great power comes great responsibility again? Eh, I don't know if that one necessarily holds as much, but this is a really interesting exploration that was ripped from the headlines in 1968, is still relevant today. And if you look at the uh, sort of our military dealings over the last several decades, uh, certainly you can make many parallels there um, that, that look into this question of, do we, even if we're not preserving peace, do we do good by leveling the playing field? Um, and, uh, you know, they struggle with this question in the episode. Um, they don't struggle too much with the alternatives. Um, but that's what we do on this show. So I kind of don't. I mean, again, I'm not going to fault them for not dealing with the alternatives at all, because mm -hmm, I mm -hmm. believe that what this episode was meant to do was hold a mirror up to society at the time that this show was written. Mm -hmm, this mm -hmm. to me is not the, you know, but we're going to get through this episode. This to yeah, me was just yeah. an examination of where they were right this moment. You don't expect Star Trek to be that necessarily. You expect Star Trek to hold a sort of, I don't want to go so far as to say a funhouse mirror up to the mm -hmm. way the world is, but kind of, you know, you expect them to hold up a mirror and so you can sort of see yourself in it, but because of the way the mirror turns or because of the, you know, the warp in the glass, you either get to see how comically stupid you're being currently, or you get to see, oh, well, look, I could be thin or, oh, look, I could be strong. I mean, there mm -hmm. are a number of things that most of the times when they hold up a mirror in Star Trek and say, okay, here's you, but you're seeing what you could be. This is just a flat pane of glass. This is just look. Yeah. And that, to me, I think makes this an incredible episode. Now, the sad part is you don't get the happy ending. You don't get the inspiring ending. You don't get the, oh, man, we're going to get there. No, you really don't get that in this episode at all. Well, and I'm not, not only am I okay with that, I'm I'm really good with that. You know, we had an episode a few weeks ago that ended with a freeze frame, for God's sake, and now, <laughs> you know, with the funny music, and now we have something that does feel more real. Yeah, um, which and, which I would imagine probably disappointed the heck out of a lot of people, and probably still does today because. Mm -hmm. One of the great things, and I will tell you, this is one of the things that I've always loved about Star Trek, is the fact that it shows us, you know, it, it, it provides a guidepost. Yeah. It says, look, if we, if we do this, and if we do this, then maybe one day we're going to get here. And right. there is something terribly depressing about, you know, turning on NBC at whatever night it was on, at whatever time it was on. And, you know, you know fingers crossed, if we do this, and we do this, then we're going to get right where we're sitting right now. Yeah, but but the message here is about the repercussions of our actions mm -hmm. when it comes to to wielding this kind of power. Yeah, and and doing it irresponsibly. So that man did it. It absolutely had to resonate with an audience forty five plus years ago, 
and it has to resonate with an audience today. That brings us to the question of does the episode hold up? And I'll say unequivocally, yes. Now, as a production, you can fault it for if you want to go the sexism route or if you want to say it's preachy or if the metaphors are thin, but it's played well and it forces you to contemplate this. It really gives you something to think about, something to debate about, except for the Mugato. <laughs> He's just evil. <laughs> the one thing that I wish, honestly, is that we didn't even have Nona in this episode because for the, mm. for the story that we're telling, she's not necessary. And so I wish we didn't even have to entertain the whole sexism thing. Because I don't know. I mean, let's assume that, okay, so the Klingons are a stand-in for the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Kirk is a stand-in for the U.S. And, and the planet is a stand-in for Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Who, who the heck is Nona? She's, who, <laughs> right. she's, she's what? She is, is she weed? <laughs> I mean, right, right. Which, which part does she play in, in that telling? I mean, unless she's just there to move the story along. But then I'd rather he had had a second in command. Because yeah. all she is, I mean, unless she's wanton power, but the problem is they were fighting before wanton power got there. Right. So right, I don't, right. I'm, eh, I, yeah. I wish that one part were gone. I think to, 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 I mean, for you to just sort of shove the sexism aside and say, oh, well, that's a thing. Well, it's actually a thing. Um, I kind of wish it weren't there. Then this to me would be a flawless episode. That said, though, yes, 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 this episode holds up. And you cool. can say, well, yeah, the wigs are stupid and the wigs are stupid. Yeah, right. But I mean, this episode, yeah, it's, it's depressing. And yeah. please don't misunderstand the whole time that I was saying the sad part is you don't get the happy ending. I'm not saying that makes this a not worthwhile episode. This is an incredibly worthwhile episode to me. Um, mm-hmm. Just, you know, have, uh, have the corpomite maneuver queued up after it, because that to me is a very happy ending with the whole yeah. thing. Or just, you know. Watch the last five minutes of the alternative factor and be grateful that it was only five minutes. <laughs> okay, fantastic. Well, you may or may not agree with us. We'd love to hear from you. Remember, you can reach us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter, where our handle is Mission Log Pod at all three places, Mission Log Pod. You can call us 323 522 5641. Again, that is 323 323- Five two two five six four one. You can also email us missionlog at roddenberry.com and remember, we may use your comments in an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Return with us again same time next week when we will return to tomorrow. Some of the music for the mission log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Next week, Robots. I love the shows with robots. And transmission. Now leaving Nerdist.com.